I'm so glad to be here. I got I come from Berkeley and I w- went to the city last week and I just whizzed in, you know, and there was no traffic and I still left enough time in case there was, but there was even more than that. So <laughs> I I'm so happy to be sitting here because I just have this terrible sinking feeling I was never going to get here. <laughs> um, so I have great relief. Um, on December 26th of last year, I uh, had been practicing in Thailand for almost two years, and I'd come back here twice, but basically was living there. And uh, I had gone after a long period of retreat, I had gone with a monk friend of mine and his brother to India for two months, and we had traveled in actually Nepal and India, and then we ended up um, in southern India for the teachings of His Holiness at Sarah Jane Monastery, um, and the teachings of the different levels of the Bodhisattvas, and there was I was with about 23,000 people. Um, I'm pretty much of an introvert, and um, I can't stand being around crowds. Um, but I can honestly say I didn't want to be anywhere else in the universe. It was such an extraordinary experience. But after two months in India, which is a, you know, which is a pretty intense country to travel in, I couldn't wait to get back to Thailand, um, which is very, a very different experience than it is traveling in India. And my husband was there, and I was going to go back and see my teachers, and I was very excited about it. Of course, the three-hour train, the three-hour uh, cab ride to the airport turned into seven hours and um, by the time I got on the plane I was just I was like I just never want to be in this country again I can't wait to go back and I flew into Thailand in the middle of the night well it's about four in the morning and um, I was waiting to get the first flight up north to Chiang Rai and where my husband was living while I was on retreat and um, I was sitting on one side of the airport and on the other side people were flying down to Phuket which is if you know anything about Thailand, it's it's the tourist destination in, in Thailand. It's like going to, you know, Miami Beach or Palm Springs or um, um, to uh, Sedona, Arizona. It's very, very, very popular in Thailand. And just planes were going and going there every half an hour while I was waiting to go up to the north. And when I finally got on the plane, and the plane, the flight was only about an hour and a half, when I got off the plane, my husband said this terrible thing just happened in the south in Phuket. And um, you know, these, did, you, did you hear about it? Did you see it? I said, I have no idea. He said, that, you know, did you feel the earthquake? I said, I was in the air. How could I feel the earthquake? Um, he had actually felt it in the north, um, and so I had been on an all-night flight. I was absolutely exhausted went to bed and when I woke up, uh, you know, our phones were ringing and we had turned on the TV and we had started beginning to see, you know, what was going on and what a disaster it was down there. And, um, uh, you know, just like everybody else around the world, feeling this unspeakable horror. And the reports were coming in from Indonesia and Sumatra and um, even Africa, what was going on. And Thai TV is very different than American TV. You know, American TV, there's usually a, you know, a kind of gorgeous, sexy reporter. And then they have some, like, the disaster in the background. Um, 
but in Thailand, it's uh, just, you know, where the dead bodies, where the, you know, the limbs here and the heads there, you know, it's much more graphic and uh, not so staged. And the next day, uh, got, I got an email from uh, the rabbi of Asia who lives in Thailand, who I happen to know, and he was saying how he had fielded about 2,000 calls from Israel because um, uh, Thailand is a very big destination for Israelis. And, uh, um, you know, they were going crazy down in Bangkok. And so I wrote, and, and they had representatives in Phuket. So I wrote him and I said, what could I do? You know, um, he said, well, nothing yet. You know, you don't, you don't speak Hebrew and it's really chaos down here. So, you know, we'll let you know when I need, we'll let you know when you should come down, you know, if we need you. Um, so the next day, you know, things were just getting worse and worse on TV. And I called him and I said, well, it just seems really bad. And he said, yeah, you know, you can just fly down and go to, you know, go to the the Bangkok Phuket Hospital in Phuket. It's like the main hospital. So I got a ride up to the airport and flew to Bangkok and then flew to Phuket and uh, took a cab to the Bangkok Phuket Hospital and I was going to go meet the um, Israeli team. He said you can just check in with them on the second floor. And when I walked in, I, you know, I, I, it's hard to explain what the scene was in the hospital. It's a huge modern hospital and when you walk inside the lobby it was just packed with people and just packed you know every wall uh, on the whole hospital was just you know splattered with pictures of missing people and computers all over the lobby of the hospital where they were downloading pictures of dead people that they were chronicling like every couple of hours you know with numbers like um, like 272 TF which should be Thai female or CF, Caucasian female, or CM, Caucasian male, and numbered. Um, and, you know, people were just in, in complete distress. The noise level was, the, you know, a lot of people wailing and a lot of people just in shocked silence, you know, clicking away on the computers. And then there was a, few, a lot of volunteer tables around, and I went up to like, the foreign relations desk and I introduced myself. I speak a little bit of Thai, and I introduced myself. And this, the, the Thai nurse just went like, <gasps> and she grabbed me, you know, and took me up to the um, the third floor of the hospital. Uh, and I never found out whether it was a psychiatric ward or it became a psychiatric ward. Or I just, she just basically said, you know, here, 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 and here. Um, People who had been severely injured, you know, were hospitalized and were basically coming, coming, you know, around to, you know, realizing what had happened. And most of them who were uh, in the hospital didn't know where their husbands or wives or sons or daughters or sisters or brother or friends were. But they couldn't get out of the hospital because they were some, some were paralyzed, some paralyzed, some had broken limbs. You know, some were in severe shock, some people had nervous breakdowns. So there was various reasons why they were in the hospital and they didn't know what was going on and neither did I. I mean, what could I say? You know, where's my husband? Where's my daughter? Where's my son? I don't know. Um, so you can imagine what the, you know, psychological, what's well, hard to imagine, 
the, what the psychological condition was of the people who were, were there um, in total distress and total panic and total anxiety and having their own physical problems. So I worked, you know, basically day and night for the first few days, um, kind of fielding one crisis after another because there wasn't enough psychological help at all. Um, and the people who had been there for the first couple of days were just absolutely exhausted. And I hadn't, didn't meet any other Western psychologists. I was basically dealing with a Thai psychiatrist and some other, I think, nurses. Um, but it was severely, you know, the, the, the shortage was, was just really astonishing considering the norm, enormity of the problem. And um, the embassies were really trying to get people out. They were just, you know, if you were, if you were getting well in the hospital um, or they needed to send you back on a hospital airplane or you needed accompaniment or whatever, but people didn't want to leave because they said, how can I leave my, you know, I don't know where my husband is. I don't know if he's in the hospital. I don't know if he's dead. I don't know where, you know, if he's in a morgue. I don't know if he's swept out to sea. You know, I don't know anything. Uh, what you know, what should I do? And it, you know, having to work with everybody, you know, with the pressure of the embassy, which was to get out, they didn't really want people staying because they didn't want the, the pressure and they didn't want the, they didn't want the, uh, the responsibility, basically, because nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew where the bodies, some bodies were going to Bangkok, some bodies were going to Krabi. Uh It was total chaos, so the easiest thing to do I'm saying this in my cynical way, was to, if you were better, to get, give you back your, give you a replacement passport and get you on a plane. So, you know, this was terribly traumatic for people not knowing what to do. And if they got up out of their hospital beds, where were they going to go? They didn't have any clothes. They didn't have any money. Um, and then, you know, uh, dealing with people calling from overseas, kind of just saying, you know, can't you do anything to find you know, my son or my daughter or my brother or my cousin or my friends. Um, so the, you know, the, the anguish was just completely over the top. Uh, and very difficult to really describe, you know, very difficult to articulate, you know, the constant pitch of sorrow and a constant pitch of despair that was going on in the hospital for that time and what was, you know, what was going on in the lobby and then, pe you know, people seeing their relative on the screen and, you know, screaming and then, you know, not knowing which morgue to go and identify the body and, you know, very little support, very little um, assistance because everybody else was in the same condition. So if I could have been cloned in about 50 places, that probably wouldn't have even been enough, but it would have been a help because it was a kind of situation where I couldn't, like if I turned to the right, somebody was like you know, pulling me to the left. If I went to the left, somebody was pulling me to the right um, because the, the need was so strong, for, especially for Westerners, because um, there was a lot of Thai staff around, but in terms of Western professional help, there just really wasn't. And they were discouraging volunteers to come down, which... I still haven't figured out to this day if it was politically motivated or I don't know why, you know, because they needed so much help. And I have a friend who I'd actually been in India with who called me from Bangkok and she said, um, and I was in the hospital dealing with somebody who was having a nervous breakdown at the time. I said, you better call back. And she called back and she said, 
you know, I'm at the volunteer place center for the blah, 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 and they tell me, they told me not to come down, that there's plenty of help. And I was just like staring into my phone going, what? first of all, she speaks perfect English and perfect Thai. And she's young and, and a good Dharma practitioner and strong. And I just said, Ginger, like, you know, I, I'm speechless. Like, my voice went into a falsetto. I was like, what do you mean? They said this. And I said, there is so much to do. You know, calm down. She's like, are you sure? I'm like, I'm really sure, you know. You just need it everywhere. I was in the private hospital, the public hospital around the corner, you know, had mostly Thai-speaking people, but still a lot of Westerners. I was at a, a very Western, you know, posh hospital where all the doctors spoke English, but still there was so much stress going on that even the doctors who spoke really good English during the stressful moments would be speaking Thai, and my Thai is mostly monastery Thai. So, you know, to, ha- to have this resource and then having her being told to be turned away was so astonishing to me. Anyway, it was on New Year's Day, and I went back to the hospital. I knew most of the people. I'd spent most of New Year's Eve till like 2 or 3 in the morning writing up discharge notes because they, the people who they were sending back were mostly being met, you know, all over the world, you know, with, you know, at the other end, uh, wherever their plane ride was going, and they needed a summary of what their medical and psychological condition was. So I was, you know, interviewing people all night and, and writing up notes. And because so, people were leaving, most of the international flights leave very, very early in the morning, so they had to get to Phuket and then get on whatever international, I mean, get go fly from Phuket to Bangkok and then get on whatever international flight. So I was up most of the night, and then the, when I went back the next morning, uh, the hospital asked me if I would be willing to go down to Krabi to help people start identifying bodies in the morgue. Um, that that's where the help was really needed now because most of the people in the hospital who could be discharged were discharged. So I was supposed to get a ride with the Israeli forensic team who were also heading down there and then, you know, everything was in chaos. Everybody's nerves were completely shot. We stopped at a mall. I got separated from them. They left without me. I didn't know where I was. I didn't have a map. I got a cab. It's like taking a cab from the airport to Mount Tam. I had no, you know, I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea where Krabby was. And the guy saying, like, I said the Krabby hospital. They told me to go to the, this hospital. Told me to go to the Krabby hospital. And the guy's like looking at me because I'm thinking, like, you know, the, I'm thinking it's like going to Palo Alto from Redwood City, and it was like going to Montana. I mean, I had no idea. So the guy's driving, and he's driving, and I'm trying to. He, I can't understand his tie because Northern tie is different than Southern tie, and it's just horrible. And I have no number to call. And she just said, "That's where they need you." And I was like, "Oh God!" So we're driving. It was like three hours, and we finally get there. I'm so bedraggled. I'm so. It's so hot, and it, the Krabby Hospital is in just as terrible condition as the hospital I had left. Um, and people were identifying bodies there, and they were like, could you go to the morgue? People don't want to go in alone. And so basically for the next days that I was there, I was I was staying at a hotel where there was a DNA testing center, and most of the survivors and families were staying there, and a lot of the embassy people. Then there was the hospital, and there was the morgue, which was a... At that point, it was a, it used to be a monastery, but they opened up the hall, which was like three times the size of this you know, whole area, including that back room. 
that's a huge dharma hall that just had bodies that was just you know dead rotting bodies in the tropical heat the pp island uh, which was about 99 percent destroyed all the bodies were being taken and there wasn't enough well, there wasn't enough help to take bodies, so there's nowhere to put them, and they were still on the island, and they were all falling apart, and people were falling apart, and people were starting to fly in from all over the world because uh, even though the embassies were saying stay away, because they didn't want to really deal with people coming, because they didn't have the internal resources or the external resources, they were just handling it from a very public relations bureaucratic point of view, telling everybody everything's under control, we'll be in touch. Meanwhile, the bodies were still rotting on the beach. Um, there was no system really uh, of management at that point. Um, nobody knew what they were doing except for the Israeli forensic team that took over the whole operation. Unfortunately, they have so much experience from terrorism, but they had never seen anything like this because the, the volume was so enormous. It was you know 500 people in the morgue, like eight, like three or 400 more couldn't you know just in the kind of the side parking lot, just bodies, and bodies being unloaded off the truck, and then not, not enough caskets, not enough body bags, nothing. So the athletes didn't want people to see this from all over the world, and so they would, and my, this is my terrible cynicism that grew up out of that, because you'd be ta- seeing people, and they'd you'd see them with their microphone saying, you know, everything's under control, we'll be in touch. You know, you know, we have, you know, stay calm, basically. That was the um, kind of the party line. And from my point of view, you know, it couldn't have been more out of control and it couldn't have been, like, in more chaos than, you know, than I could have ever imagined. You know, the stench of 500 rotting bodies, you know, at least inside, you know, three or 400 more rotting outside with no protection in the tropical heat, hysterical people all over, you know, them not them basically, you know, um, disobeying the commands of their embassy, which is they're not to come, and then people coming in just going, where do I go and where do I start, uh, and then having to look at computer printouts, computer computer pictures coming off every few hours, and then needing my help to go into the morgue to look at you know bodies as they were lined up to find out, you know, if indeed the number that they saw on the computer matched the number of the person on the floor. So, um, you know, the monks were working nonstop. They were chanting day and night. They were running funerals for the Thai people who were found. The villagers, Basically, all the teenagers had band together, and anybody with a pickup truck was trying to get bodies off the beach. Um, the doctors and the nurses were working, you know, to, you know nonstop. And uh, the survivors and families, you know, were just trying to fill out identification forms, um, bring dental records. Uh, and find their loved ones, and a lot of many did who took the gruesome task of doing it, and many didn't because you know so many people there about almost 5,500 bodies that were discovered, but at least 3,000 others that hadn't, and it really vanished. But nobody knew at, the, at that time because the numbers weren't really coming. You know, nobody knew the numbers. So, um, as I said, it was my it was what I was doing was admitting people to the hospital who were 
having nervous breakdowns and helping people who were in the process of making identifications, going back and forth to the morgue and, um, you know, going in and out with them, trying to, you know, figure out who was who, which is not easy when bodies are deteriorating and rotting and very hard to identify through jewelry. Most of the time through jewelry, moles, tattoos, sometimes clothing. If, if somebody had been there with that person that day, they could see clothing, but if not, if they weren't, they didn't know what they were wearing. If there was parents coming in from around the world, they had dental records, and the Israeli team was taking uh, dental records of everybody and labeling those, and then hope, if somebody came in and thought that was their relative, they were trying to get matches. Um, so again, this, this was probably like a, this was about a 20 hour a day operation. Um, body bags were being flown in all over the world because there just was from all over the world because there wasn't enough. So there were teams of people uh, trying to do that. Um, there was a lot of Isra religious Israelis who came because according to Jewish law, you can't, you're not supposed to leave anybody who's dead exposed. But since they didn't know who was Jewish or who wasn't, they were bagging everybody that they could. Um, and the, all the other forensic teams were basically lining up to get the Israeli forensic team's help. And um, what was going on, you know, there was just, was so heartbreaking because people were coming in with their missing persons forms, with their dental records, with their fingerprints, whatever they could have. And then, you know, they'd go over everything with the teams. And then they basically have to sit and wait. You know, um, they had so, you know, they had flown in a huge team who's working nonstop. And, you know, every time if I was out waiting with them, or the Israeli team would call me wherever I was, the morgue at the hospital or somewhere else in the hotel. They'd call me if they found a positive identification, and we would sit and tell the families, you know, that their bodies had been found. Um, so, you know, even if the body was identified, they didn't release them unless there was other kind of physical uh, evidence because um, uh, people were so hysterical. They sometimes they just they thought they found it, like the body, and bodies were kind of leaving the morgue. But, you know, it's like in your hysteria, you know, was that really your daughter, or was that really your brother, or was that really you know, your two cousins you were traveling with? Some people, most, well, half and 50-50 people I worked with had multiple losses, and some people, you know, about 50% had more than one person that they were looking for, and about 50% had just one. And, you know, there was, so there was a kind of camaraderie outside the Israeli forensic team, kind of, because, you know, people were hearing just terrible news. Nobody was going to hear good news. They were just waiting to get confirmation. And so um, people were just sitting outside the office, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours waiting. And every time the door opened, you know, everybody just you know, gulped in fear that they were going to hear the bad news, which, you know, most people, and most people who searched did find people few people had to go home without bodies, but that became like the badge of honor that if you, you were able to bring, you know, your loved one home, that was considered a mission accomplished, whereas, you know, the doubly devastated people were people who, you know, couldn't find who they were looking for and, 
you know, the feeling of desperate grief on top of feeling like a failure, you know, with another psychological condition I was trying to deal with. And of course, through it all, you know, um, being a psychologist professionally, but also having spent all this time meditating, you know, in Thailand, you know, and having to really, you know, come back to just the feelings in my feet and my breath and the, you know, the utter, uh, you know, horror of the situation. And I, I thought all the time that, you know, if I was just working as a psychologist, I would have had, I would have had a nervous breakdown, but I was really working from the point of view of a practitioner and being, you know, working on holding my center. So I felt very privileged that I was able to be in the, you know, in the, in the appearance of a psychologist, but in my heart being a, you know, a meditator because, you know, we train ourselves in, in, you know, understanding the truth of impermanence and the truth of suffering. And then when it's smacked in your face and, and, uh, you know, and not only in your face, but, you know, the smells of rotting bodies and the sight of, you know, you know, people collapsing in grief, you see that, you know, this, this is what happens every day. This is what happens every hour. But when you see it crunched all together, you know, and the Buddha talks, tells us, you know, you know, death, you know, death comes at any moment and it's not pretty. It's not, you know, it's not lovely at all. Um, it was not just the survivors that were freaking out. I mean, the embassy people were freaking out. The ambassadors were freaking out. The, the, the forensic teams were falling apart. I mean, the, the intensity of it was just, so you didn't even know, like I would approach people and I didn't, I wouldn't know if they were survivors or families or workers or any, you know, I didn't know who anybody was because the, the massive, you know, devastation and, and grief and, um, the despair was just throughout everybody. I mean, if you had a name tag, well, I knew that you, you know, you probably were working there, but if, if people's names tags fell off or they had, you know, or they had something covering them, like if they were working, if they were in the morgue or whatever, I, you know, I didn't know. And you couldn't tell because the exhaustion, the heat, the, um, um, you know, the, the, the sheer horror, the enormity of it was just completely overwhelming for everybody. Um, I felt very privileged to do what I was able to do, which is basically sit with people in their worst nightmare or stand with people in their worst nightmare um, and help them as much as I could by uh, staying centered in myself and being able to be open to the flood of grief that was, you know, there in their in their in their moments of you know just feeling that you know they just wanted to die in their own sadness and their own you know um, completely feeling overwhelmed and so you know I, th- I it was my hope and I think I did through my own ability just to be there um, through that with people and be a source of comfort and strength. Um, and somebody they could count on, you know, was a great privilege that I feel is very impersonal to me. I don't take, I'm not taking credit. I'm just saying that this is a fruit of the practice that I felt was expressing itself in that moment. You know, the monks were out 
outside the, the wat, I mean, outside the, the, the morgue, you know, chanting anicca, sankara, you know, all, all conditioned things are impermanent, you know, uh, everything that arises eventually passes away. And for those who understand this, you know, very deeply um, experience true, true peace. And it was so powerful, you know, as a Westerner to understand the meaning of the chant and to be in the morgue and to be here the monks outside. Um, chanting this you know, ancient funeral verse, you know, while people were, you know, finding their loved ones or hearing from the, the team that the, uh, you know, that the body that they thought was their relative, in fact, was or relatives. So I'll, you know, I'll just never forget those people. They're in my heart forever. Um, I didn't have time to get very exchange emails or names or, you know, but there were a few people that, because, you know, they were so devastated and I was so worried about their condition. I stayed with for, you know, as many hours as I could, even though my phone was ringing constantly. And as I said, I couldn't have been cloned enough. Um, I'll be seeing a couple who lost their daughter when I go to New York um, in two weeks. but. You know, other than that, these people have vanished all over the world, you know, and I think about them a lot. I think about the, you know, them trying to put their lives back together and, you know, how, how, how could they heal their hearts that were so, you know, shattered and broken. And, um, you know, I came back to the United States about a month after the tsunami and feeling, you know, very shattered in my own way because, you know, you come back and I don't know anybody else who's been through the experience that I've been through. So it's nice to come to a Buddhist audience and group um, and talk about the experience because, you know, we're all practicing together. We all know the power of meditation or learning to develop the power of meditation. You know, what it means to really sit through an itch or sit through, a le- you know, a knee pain or sit through um, an uncomfortable feeling because, you know, you see in conditions like that I was in that we're all eventually going to face, you know, the power of being able to do it, to just sit there and not run away and not close down, which is a fruit of the practice that we're all trying to, you know, establish in our hearts and minds. So, thank you very much. Are there any questions? Or Not not turning away, just just being there for for people, you know, falling apart. 
you know, just being able to be there in a steady way, I think was, as I, said, I don't, I did, my appearance was a psychologist and they were happy to say Dr. Rana, that's what they, everyone called me, my last name's too complicated, but uh, that's, I, you know, but I wasn't really behaving as a psychologist, I was more, you know, a closet practitioner because that's, I didn't learn that as a psychologist, I learned to kind of be in my head. So as a meditator, we learn to settle in the body and open ourselves to whatever is happening as graciously as we can, through better or for worse, <laughs> which I've been doing in the forest, which was the hardest experience of my life, you know, with the tropical heat and the bugs and the one meal a day. And, you know, I complained for almost two years in my mind. <laughs> you know, so I was used to sitting through a lot of you know, my own despair and hardship, but nothing like what I was seeing down there. But it helped. Thank you so much for taking something that I think we all experienced as images on our television sets and turning it into something that was so real. Uh, you've talked about how your practice informed your ability to deal with this situation when you were there. Now that you're back, have you had time to begin to understand how that experience will inform your practice from here forward? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, I, I, I'm still kind of numb um, and from it and... A little isolated, as I said, because I don't. Um, I've kind of made it a practice not to talk about my experiences like in a casual way with people. Who say, "Oh, you were in the tsunami. What was it like?" You know, kind of. Um, so I've only ta I've talked to Gil's group, and I talked to uh, a group at my synagogue. I'm going to talk to um, another group on the coastline of the Pasana people. I spoke here before, so I'm containing it to people who could hear on the level that I'm relating at. I'm not chatting, chatting away about my experience to people I meet who say, oh, how, you know, how's your time dialing? We, you know, I heard you worked in the tsunami. So I'm trying to protect myself. That's one thing I've done, is to be careful who I share my information with. I did write an article that's coming out in the Inquiring Mind. Um, and I'm just trying to reestablish my life in the United States. I'm not sure what I'm going to do now for work, so I'm starting to network. But I'm just beginning to feel the how different I am and not knowing who I am, not just from going through my experience in the tsunami, but also being on retreat for almost two years in the forest of Thailand. So it's like people say, because I'm a psychologist by training, well, what do you want to do? I said, well... I don't have to be a psychologist, and I want to do something where I help people, and I, but I don't want to do sales and marketing. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, I'm not sure yet. And so I'm, I, I'm still like, I feel like I'm emerging from something, and I'm still a little vague, you know. But I, I don't know, as I said, and I, I, uh, I don't know. I'm, haven't figured it out yet. I, last week I just felt kind of depressed about thinking about the people in the tsunami and I was reading some stories on the internet about how 
the money, you know, they, they just raised all these billions of dollars and it's not going anywhere. And, um, you know, I just started getting really just discouraged in my mind and having to kind of pick myself up and uh, try to stay on an even keel from all the, just the culture shock, the shock of going through what I did, um, integrating the practice in my life. So it's, um, it's kind of a strange time. <laughs> And looking for a job. I don't know. It's a weird life here. Just getting used to America again, you know, um, it's been a very big, big adjustment. Uh, living in an Asian Buddhist country, I really loved. I really loved being in Thailand. It's a very gracious, kind country, and living in a monastery in the forest. And, you know, even though it was really it was the hardest thing I've ever done, it was physically very demanding. Um, I was the only part of the time. I was the only Westerner, and so there was language stress. Um, there's tremendous safety in a Buddhist country that I don't feel here. There's tremendous generosity and dana, unbelievable the amounts of support you get for being, you know, on eight, I was on eight precepts, and people are so respectful of Buddhist teachings and so respectful of people who do, devote their lives to it. The masters, they're so respectful. You know, they're, they're, they would do anything for me as a Westerner because, you know, they knew I was separated from my culture, from my language, from my husband, and, you know, they know they know how difficult it is anyway. And, you know, everything's given completely freely. So, and then you come back here and everything is like how much and writing checks and kind of like there's, there's, there's that hard edge of the economy here that is kind of striking, you know, it's like, wow, you know, everything has a dollars and cents attached where, you know, like one night I was at, I, was at, I think I, when I went down to Crab B, when I had no idea where I was going and I, I thought it was like around the corner, I left all my stuff at the hotel in Phuket and then it was like two o'clock in the morning, I was stinking of death and I was like, oh my God, I don't have any of my clothes, you know, they're all in Phuket at this hotel and it's like, ah. Oh three hours away, it's the middle of the night, it's like, what am I going to do? And some people just drove me back to Phuket, and they wait, I, I slept until seven, I got, I, it was like two, I got there at like 4.30, and I met them at seven, I, I don't know who, I don't even know their names, you know, they just did it, because I was in the hospital, I think, then, and I was like, they said, where are you staying? I was like, oh, I kind of came too, I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm, all my stuff in Phuket because when I left Phuket to go to Krabi, I had no idea where I was going. So <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Just um, it's not like that in America. <laughs> I mean, it's nobody's fault. It's just that it's the graciousness of the ties and the humility of the ties, and um, you know, their, their generosity. You know, really op- cracked my heart open. So I'm just getting used to having to put on a harder shell here. And also, in looking for a job, it's like, well, it's, it's like, what do you do? And what can you do? It's like, it's like I don't, I'm not sure, you know? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Keep my heart open in hell, I don't know. Um, that's not very marketable. Uh, <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's like, and in the forest, you're trying to like, you're trying to like dis- disintegrate your boundaries of a self, you know, that's what we, and so then, like, when you're looking for a job, it's like you've got to be a self. You know, it's like, pack, it's like, 
like, what can you do for us? Kind of like, you know, what's your marketability? And it's like, I'm, and I think, God, I spent all this time like trying to not think about myself, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's been a difficult adjustment. Because I'm still, I mean, I'm sure it'll take a long, long time to adjust. So I, you know, I'm, I'm still pinching myself. I just got back two months ago, so still young <laughs> and a little lonely, but a little, uh, you know, still shaking my head. <laughs> what am I doing? Where am I going? I have a very nice husband. I'm lucky. He, <laughs> he's very kind patient <laughs> with my kind of indecisions right now. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah, Weight Watchers to, to, to Thailand, yeah. Well, I, I had actually, um, after I, I worked for Weight Watchers, I, I had my management consulting firm called Mindful Management it was the name of my company and I did a, uh, a lot of communication skills and team building and executive coaching but most of my clients were in New York and after 9-11 things kind of fell apart and so it was a good time for me to go and do a long period of practice and I just didn't want to do it in, in America I just it was expensive I, I it was um, and if I was going to go for like a year or two, you know, if you add up all that money, and I just, it just seemed, I was just kind of tired of being a customer, kind of in the scene, the Dharma scene, and just, you know, having to pay my bills, and all my teachers talking about, you know, being in the forest and being with the great masters. So I decided, you know, that's what I would try to do. And I had been in Thailand and had worked at a university there, and I did meet a master who invited me to come and stay with him. So um, through an Australian monk friend of mine, who when I was there with him, I, I had a translator, I didn't know Thai. And then after I, I left that monastery, because I was the only woman, I went to another monastery where I was the only Westerner, but there were other women. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm really glad I did, because the tra- you know, to be with an Arahant, I was with two Arahants, you know, fully enlightened beings. It completely purified the, their minds and hearts of greed, hatred, and delusion, and to be at their feet and be un, under their wings and guidance, you know, was really life-changing in and of itself. Not that I don't respect my teachers here, I do, but the, you know, that level of complete purity just absolutely blew me away. And as I said, it was, you know, the, the generosity that you feel to offer back to them, you know, then you really do see the Dharma as priceless, not when you're writing checks every five minutes, you know, <laughs> like you are here at the retreat centers, which are so expensive and, and you know, don't really practice the renunciation and don't, you don't get the results because you're not pulled along by these, you know, beings who have, are totally pure and um, there's more renunciation and there's more kind of... Um, the spirit of, you know, living and breathing the Dharma versus isolating yourself for a limited period of time and, and then going back on the world. So there people come every day and, you know, monks go on Bindabad, they go on alms rounds, you eat alms food. It's very gorgeous, you know, that they come back with these truckloads of food and it's like a feast every day, all on generosity, you know, and you're not paying for it. You know, it's not like you've paid for your bed and your three meals a day, you know, it's not like that. It's just the you know, the kuti that you live in, the meditation hut's been built on generosity, the food that you get every day, the clothes you wear, 
you know, it's very, it's, it's an, that just alone, without even sitting down, crossing your legs, and you're taking a breath, is already change, you know, life changing. So, you know, I, I went because I, I knew there was a flavor of the Dharma I couldn't get here, and and how we've created it in our American culture. mystery of that tragedy in such a graceful way. I don't think we are prepared to do any of that work that you did. Well, you never know. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I wouldn't have said I was either, by the way. So. <laughs> I think your path prepared you, and you, in a sense, represented people like me who intellectually got a feel, a tiny taste for the huge tragedy like a sea of death is happening and we can't feel it and we can't partake of it and we can't honor the departed and it's a disconnect. Yeah, I you understand You know what I'm that. saying? Yeah, I do. And um, that's why I said it was, I felt very privileged to be there, to, to be connected with people and to help as much as I could. Um, because when, you know, it is hard to, see the experience filtered through the public relations campaign of the government and the media, you know. So I, I, I just spent five months in Iran, and uh, I was in Yazd, and uh, dealing with memory of the departed ones. Mm. The Zoroastrians remember the departed for 30 years. And then I went to uh, Hosseinieh, which is the Shiite gathering place during Ashraf to honor uh, the grandson of the prophet Hossein who was martyred and a non-Muslim doesn't do that and I did it mm. and um, I had a sense that those cultures that culture in particular really um, holds the, de- the mystery of the departed ones gracefully and, and just has the practice of remembering and um, I'm mentioning this simply because you've done this work and maybe there's something in the future for you to help us do that. I hope so. Thank (laughs) you. Ready, willing, and able. But thank you. Thank you for telling us about your experience in Iran. Wow. I can't even imagine going there, especially as a Jew. (laughs) 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 I don't think they'd be so thrilled to see in a Buddhist. I mean, you know, that, that wouldn't be too... I would be welcome. Okay. Maybe, yeah. I mean, why not? If you're just working on the heart level, everybody's welcome. What's your name? So nice to meet you. Any other questions or comments? I'm loud enough, but I'll. Um, I used to be a clinical social worker in hospital settings, and my specialty was death and dying and mm-hmm. dealing with families. And no, no way did I ever get to the level of what you had to um, experience. Um, however, I, I, for understanding that on the smallest level uh, in comparison, 
um, I just want to support you and say I hope, uh, just listening to you, <laughs> I just hope while um, this transition is so hard, I can see mm. for you obviously, and I just I think it's just so important to surround yourself, and I know you know this, with people who can support you in whatever level mm. that is, not just your meditation, but just your community, and yeah. uh, I hope you can find that. Um, um, just I feel for you. I, you. I actually uh, stopped doing clinical social work and pursued something else because right. I needed to. So I, I feel for you when you say you don't know if you want to do be a psychologist right. yet. I'm ready to work in a comedy club or something. Well, <laughs> I'm well, ready to work in a comedy club or exactly. something. Exactly. You know? And, and, and right. you never know. Right. And I'm here to tell you, I've totally changed careers. I'm a, a photographer now, and I love it. Yeah. I absolutely love it. <laughs> and uh, just give yourself time. And, and, yeah, uh, I am. You need it. I You'll do. Need it. <laughs> um, Thank you. I do. I love being in, you know, uh, with other practitioners because I feel like we're all trying to, you know, look at just our in breath and our out breath and our lifting, moving, placing, and each step. So that that's you know, it's the hugest comfort to me. I don't need to really talk about it, but because it's such a wonderful heart space when you meditate with other people. So thank you. Any other questions or comments? Yes. I have a hard time imagining how in that situation you would have any sense of equanimity or balance just with the intensity of everything. How did you find your, just with mindfulness of the body or how did you? Yeah, mindfulness of the body and um, breathing, deep breathing and um, feeling my fingertips, feeling my lips. I like that one, feeling my lips touch. And uh, just, you know, staying still as I could, you know, when people were collapsing or, uh, you know, hysterical. You know, just trying to stay as centered as I could. And, you know, I cried a lot, a lot. Not hysterically crying, because that, you know, that was you know, weep more weeping just from, you know, seeing so many small children dead, so many parents, you know, having to, you know, deal with their children's death or their husband or wife or, you know, husband and daughter or son and mother, you know. Um, You know, metta to them, metta to myself, metta for the whole human condition. And it wasn't like, it's not like we're not going to face any of this, you know what I mean? So it was like, it's just a matter of time. You know, usually you don't get to see your loved ones in a rotting, you know, on the ground like that. But we might, you know, usually we're more pretty about death around here. But, um, you know, this is, this is the mess we're all in. <laughs> Samsara, you know, this is it. So, um, you know, I just have tremendous compassion for the mess we're in and the whole human condition, which is why, you know, when, when it comes down to it, there isn't any distinctions. Shiites, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, it's, you know, we're all in the mess together. So, um, and as Buddhists, we, we, we work on, I mean, as practitioners, we work on, you know, 
having those edges basically get loosened up and then evaporate. And if you can stay in that state, you know, you're pretty well developed. If you can't stay in that state, you know, you're always suffering because you think you're separate, but we're not. Especially when you realize, you know, death comes at it without warning at any moment and that this, you know, everybody here will be a corpse. It's like at that point, you know, what, what difference does it make, you know, what country you came from, you know what I mean? So it didn't matter. And, you know, when there were corpses on the beach, you know, nobody was saying this is an American corpse or this is a Swedish corpse. I mean, that, that's a corpse is a corpse. And everybody, you know, that morning was have, probably having a good time. You know, people were dead in bathing suits and tennis gear and, you know, that was weird. Just, you know, because they were just having life. It wasn't like they were in a war and they were dead in a uniform. It was they were, you know, in shorts and t-shirts and, you know, they were on the beach, you know, partying. So... Anyway, I just thought I'd do a little chant. I'll do Anicca. Uh, it's done three times at, at funerals, monks chant. and. The, uh, as I said in my talk, it's uh, all conditioned things are impermanent. Whatever has the nature to rise, you know, must pass, must pass away. And, you know, those beings who understand this uh, deeply, you know, experience the bliss of true happiness. So. Anicca vata sankara upaduva Upakituwa nirochanti te sang upasamo suko Anichawata sankara upadawa yadamino Upakituwa nirochanti te sang upasamo suko Anichawata sankara upadawa yadamino Upakituwa nirochanti te sang upasamo suko. So whatever merit um, accumulated from talking about my experience be for the benefit of all the victims and all their surviving friends and relatives. May their memories be for a blessing. Thank you.